Everyone thinks this story starts October 2nd, 2002, with the murder of James Martin as he returns to his car after buying groceries, and it does kind of start there. Uh, but the truth is, it starts much earlier. In 1993, 38-year-old John Allen Muhammad befriends 13-year-old Lee Boyd Malvo. Red flag number one. Uh, Malvo is born in Kingston, Jamaica, but in 1998, he moves to Antigua with his mom. Um, later on, Malvo would go on to tell people that she was very physically abusive and that most of his childhood was pretty unhappy for the most part. Um, there are kind of pockets of, of happiness, but for the most part, it was a lot of moving around and um, a lot of getting used to new places, making new friends. Um, so, Muhammad actually had moved to Antigua because he had kidnapped his three children from his second marriage. Always good. Yeah, definitely a catch. Uh, and brought them to Antigua around 1999 after violating a restraining order that his second wife had asked for. In Antigua, Lee Malvo had been a student where he was actually pretty beloved by friends and teachers at a Seventh-day Adventist school. They were pretty religious for for Christians, and this is going to play into the the greater story later. Um, But he was doing really, really well academically. His achievements were even more remarkable because, as I said, he moved around a lot. At this point, his mother had left the country and he was living alone in a single room plywood shack with no electricity and no running water. It's like straight out of a movie. Yeah, it's 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 definitely neglect. It's definitely child abuse and it's definitely not cool. So red flag number two. Um, this is when he and Muhammad become pretty close. And as it turns out, uh, Malvo's mother had done this, like, before. She just kind of left him with random people, teachers, cousins. So for him to befriend this older man didn't seem that out of character for him. It's kind of like he was set up for this really, really weird relationship. At this point, I definitely want to point out how insane it is that these two people were, quote-unquote, friends. It was suspicious to almost everyone around them like, people in the community, but Malvo, not Malvo, um, Muhammad had three kids of his own. So when he took in Malvo, people were like, I guess he's better off, but it's super weird how much time they're spending together. And still a different dynamic than he had with his children. Yes, extremely. Like, it's super strange. Um, For the next few years, Malvo would live with Muhammad full-time. Uh, until 2001, when he is smuggled into Miami by Muhammad and is briefly reunited with his mother, who then moves them to Washington State, where he is allowed to attend school, and he is described by classmates as very, very smart but isolated. This is also the same year that John Allen Williams would change his name to John Allen Muhammad. Unfortunately, any sense of normalcy would always be short-lived for Malvo. The pair was soon arrested by immigration, so his mother and himself were arrested for being in the country illegally. By December of that year, Malvo, who was out on bond, would be reunited with Muhammad after running away from his mother. 
While living in a homeless shelter together, Muhammad put Malvo on a very strict diet and exercise regimen that was nearly military. Um, According to an article I read, Muhammad had Malvo steal a 223 caliber Bushmaster AR-15 rifle from a local gun shop. Um, So an AR rifle, I believe, is automatic. And then began subjecting the boy to rigorous training um, including leopard crawls across the floor, across the forest floor, calisthenics, revolutionary literature, target practice, and military theory. Each night before he went to bed, Malvo was made to memorize passages from Sun Tzu's *The Art of War*, and often the pair would drive deep into the st- stands of the White Oak and the Douglas fir to practice marksmanship using makeshift targets with paper plates for heads. One of these would later be recovered by police officers. Other times, Muhammad would tie Malvo up for hours to a tree in the foothills of the of Mount Baker, where he would go without food, water, or sleep until the older man came back to free him. Often, Malvo would be left in a plain T-shirt in the snow. On February 16, 2002, Kenya Cook was shot and killed in front of the home where she was staying in Tacoma, Washington. Kenya was the first of 17 victims on a killing spree that would hold the nation hostage and span nine months. These are the attacks of the DC snipers. I'm Natalie Levy. And I am Ariane Lorena. And this is Detective Society. Some of you may be noticing we have a new guest host this week. Hello. I know Mike doesn't sound that lovely or feminine. (laughs) So we are recording. Hopefully we have better sound quality. Uh, We're recording from a quote unquote soundproof closet at work. Except that my dog is on the ground chewing a bone. So if you hear little knocking noises, that would be Bronson. Hi, Bronson. So I, I think the listeners are probably pretty used to hearing dog noises because we have Billy and Rusty constantly like just barking and making noises in the background at our place. This is real life. <laughs> this is what happens. We keep it very, very gritty. That's right. Um, so once again, uh, as always, if you guys hear any inaccuracies or you just want to reach out and tell me what an amazing job I'm doing, mm-hmm. you can reach me at... Um, Detective Society Pod at gmail.com or at the Detective Pod on Twitter. And if you like what we're doing, please rate and review. Evidently, it helps on iTunes. I am not an expert, so I couldn't say for certain. Um, so this week, we're going to be talking about the DC sniper attacks. And actually, as I was doing my research, there was just so much information and so many victims that this might be a two-parter, depending on how long we go tonight. Um, and also, it's crazy. It really is. Uh, I think it's hard to explain to people who didn't live in the area or who maybe were too young to remember just how terrifying the whole situation was. But Ariane actually was here um, in 2002 when this took place. Yeah, I um, in 2002, I was either a sophomore or junior in high school. And um, the day that uh, the 
the victim was was shot at the Home Depot. My mom and I had actually been at the Home Depot a few hours before. Um, people were terrified to pump their gas, um, to go anywhere, really. I, I remember, you know, they, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, you know, the, the white van, you know, that they, that they thought this person was in. Um, you know, every time you saw a van, you know, your mind just kind of went through this thought was, you know, am I going to be the next victim? Um, it was a very, very scary time. I think people just felt like sitting ducks um, at every turn. And it just seemed relentless and endless. And it was just, it was a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, according to the Washington Post, death could come from anywhere, anytime. In gas stations and parking lots, they even shot and wounded a 13-year-old standing in front of a middle school. Sporting events were canceled. People cowered behind tarps as they filled their cars with gas. Parents kept their children at home. Yeah, it was surreal. Every gas station had white, you know, sheets up so people could pump their gas. But, I mean, you never really felt safe anywhere you went. It was just... It was surreal. It was it was it was probably one of the more terrifying things that happened here um, in the in the D.C. area that I can remember. Yeah. And keep in mind, this is post 9-11, post Columbine. People, even though we were kind of on high terror alert, people were not used to not knowing who the suspects were, not understanding why the attacks were happening or where it was coming from. And that was that was really the thing was there was no, you know, with Ted Bundy, he went after, you know, young brunettes. There was no rhyme or reason to the victims that they were going after. At least it didn't seem that way. And so literally nobody felt safe. So... Normally, I like to focus on the victims. I really hate glorifying murderers, but in this case, that's actually really, really difficult to do. We believe that there are 17 victims, and each one of those people has their own unique story, has their own life, has their own family that was completely devastated. It's really, really hard to go through every single one of these people's lives in 45 minutes, but I'm going to do the best I can. I think the biggest takeaway for me after all of this research was just how completely senseless all of these murders were. It, I think Arian was just speaking to it. There didn't seem to be any reason that people could possibly do this to each other. Right. Um, so... Even though I don't, I don't think we can really justify any of these murders, I'll try to give you guys some kind of context. So let's start with John Allen Muhammad. It's kind of crazy, but you can draw some parallels between Muhammad's early life and Malvo's. Um, Muhammad, who was the older man, uh, who was in his 40s when these attacks occurred, actually masterminded the entire thing. Which seems pretty obvious to me. He was in a position of power over this kid. And when they met, Malvo was between 13 and 14. He was super impressionable. Um, But Muhammad had basically always been troubled. And maybe that's what kind of drew them together. He was born John Allen Williams to Ernest and Ava Williams. Which, when I read that, I was like, God... This could be the start of such a cute, adorable story. But it's not. No. (laughs) 
Um, so when he was three years old, his mother died of breast cancer and his father just bailed, like just left, which means that Muhammad was raised by basically whoever would take him in. In this case, it was, uh, his grandfather, he was bounced between his grandfather and then an aunt and an uncle. There are a lot of really different reports of what that time was like. Some sources have no information. Some sources that were a little bit less reliable um, claim that he was abused by his uncle. I think any way that you look at it, there must have been something that happened to this person before adulthood. Um, But he was actually consistently described as approachable and friendly to the people who knew him when he was growing up. After high school, he got married and had one child, but very soon after that, divorced his wife and joined the army where he served in the Gulf War. Um, I believe, I'm not 100% on this, I believe he served um, with the Army Corps of Engineers. Um, He was definitely always described as very, very intelligent. But as we know, (laughs) neither the Army uh, nor being very intelligent are guarantees for mental health. After leaving the Army in 1987, he joined the Nation of Islam. After that, he was married a second time and had three children before what is described as an extremely contentious divorce. It kind of it kind of spanned like a three-year period where he and his wife were fighting, getting divorced. She was getting a restraining order. Um, nothing that could have been very good for these three kids. Um, so... <laughs> In 1999, and I'm not sure how this was orchestrated because it's it's not gone into detail in a lot of my sources, but he kidnapped his own three children and attempted to flee to Antigua where he met uh, Lee Malvo. And there Malvo basically becomes his protege. Uh, again, he was... His mom and and he had left his father in Kingston, Jamaica, after his mom basically just told his father that it wasn't going to work. By all accounts, his father still wanted to be involved in his life, but his family had just disappeared one day. Um, They moved to Antigua, and his mother found out that she could make more money in the States, so she got papers that by some sources, was forged by Muhammad and then moved over to Miami and left her young boy alone. Yeah, I mean, that's just, it's a pretty heartbreaking scenario to be in for anyone, but it definitely doesn't bode well for the rest of the, the story. Yeah, I, I have a hard time with this one because of how heartless and cold the murders were but at the same time I look at Malvo's life and I just think to myself like you didn't you didn't have a chance like well and he finds someone who he can quote unquote look up to and it just couldn't be a worse person to look up to yeah according to a lot of people he was constantly looking for that father figure and the one person who was willing to basically invest time and energy in him and who was always there, who literally never turned his back on him, was a monster. (laughs) So, obviously, his story is really, really heartbreaking. He 
wanted to be loved so badly. He, by all accounts, is this kid who had all this love to give. And, I mean, we can we, we can kind of go through his history right now. Um, by the time that Lee Malvo was eight years old, he had already attended seven different schools. And by the time he was 15, he would have attended five more. He was basically, like, ripe for the picking for a guy like Muhammad. Uh, recently... God, when was it? I think it was probably 2009. An author named Carmetta Alvarez um, wrote a book on Malvo where she posits that he has re- reactive attachment disorder. Um, it's described as a rare but serious condition in which infants and young children don't establish healthy bonds with parents or caregivers. A child with reactive attachment disorder is typically neglected, abused, or orphaned. Reactive attachment disorder develops because the child's needs for comfort, attention, and nurturing aren't met. Loving, caring attachments with others are never established. This may be this may permanently change the child's growing brain, hurting the ability to establish future relationships. Malvo himself is quoted as saying, I was desperate to fill a void in my life, and I was ready to give my life up for him. Talking about Muhammad. Mm. Um, Muhammad is also the first person to provide Malvo with any real routine or discipline. He... Unfortunately, by doing that, controlled basically everything about Malvo's life, um, from what he ate to who he talked to, and no matter what, Muhammad was always in control when they were around each other. On top of all of that, and this is really heartbreaking, Malvo, in recent years, has claimed that Muhammad had been sexually abusing him. Man. It just, it's so hard to hear this stuff. I mean, and and I understand how you feel a sense of sympathy or, you know, where you don't want to feel that sympathy, right? I mean, it just sounds like such an unfortunate, unfortunate lifestyle for this kid. And what's crazy is that it's such a change from the person that would be depicted in the news because... To be frank, he was super unapologetic when he was arrested. He was talking about jihad and how everything he did was right and how he was going to die, but he was going to be rewarded. And it's so hard to think about that and then know later on in life how repentant he's been. Um, He actually had an interview with Matt Lauer um, and said for the entire period... Uh, when I was almost 15 until I got arrested. So two years later, when he was 17, I was sexually abused by John Muhammad. I felt a sense of shame, and I just said, that's just something I will never tell anyone. So considering how much control Muhammad had over Lee Malvo, to me, it's really not surprising that he just went along with anything that he asked him to do. Yeah, I mean, he, he basically beat him down emotionally, mentally, physically until, you know, I, I think your your body just kind of goes into this, like, coasting mode so you protect yourself. I mean, at some point he probably believed that he was right in doing what he was doing. I yeah. I, I think that you also hear a lot about this kind of stuff from abuse victims or hostages where they just go into self-preservation mode right. and whatever they can do to make the person who's tormenting them happy, they'll just do because they just they just want to get through the next day or the next hour. Exactly. I actually read an article that I thought put this really perfectly. Um, 
They said, as every ground forces general knows, the most malleable killing machine on earth may be a teenage boy desperately needing to belong to something greater. So in 2001, there seemed to be a shift. Muhammad's children had been taken away from him when they were discovered with him and returned to their mother. And Malvo had literally run away from his own mother to be with this older man. Um, Literally, neither of them had anything left or anyone left to lose. So, and this happens kind of gradually. Um, It's over... A course of months, but Muhammad starts setting up these quote-unquote missions for Malvo, where they would hunt each other sniper style in a local Indian reservation or in a nearby forest, and then Muhammad started introducing interrogation techniques and then torture techniques, and basically taught Malvo to live by two rules. One was do whatever it takes. And the second was, there's no turning back. He was literally building himself a killing machine. On February 16th, 2002, two days before Malvo's 17th birthday, he's still very much a child, John Muhammad placed in front of Lee Malvo his first big test. Muhammad was angry with a woman named Isa Nichols, who he felt had betrayed him during the early days of his custody battle with his second wife, Mildred. What Muhammad may not have known was that Nichols' niece, 21-year-old Kenya Cook, was living with her six-month-old baby in Nichols' home. She was basically using it as a haven from an abusive relationship. So this poor girl is running away from one horrible situation and doesn't know that she's about to run into a completely different one. That night, February 16th, 16-year-old Malvo approached the house with orders to kill the woman who came to the door. So Muhammad thought it would have been Isa Nichols, and it wasn't. Do you think that he might specify maybe what the person looked like or you know, gave some distinct (laughs) characteristics of the person. I mean, I think at this point, like, there was no... there. It's crazy because you want to believe that he was not in touch with reality and that he was mentally unstable, and then you hear about the lengths that they went to and how long they weren't caught for, and it's so hard to believe in both of those things at the same time. Um... So Kenya was alone in the house with her baby, and, oh, God, this is horrible. And she was in the middle of changing her baby's diaper when the doorbell rang. When Cook opened the door, she was shot in the face with a single bullet. Here's the thing. The 17 other people or 16 other people who were murdered were murdered in the exact same way Kenya was. And keep in mind, at this point... I believe that they're still in Tacoma, Washington. So they're across the country. They're right. gonna they're about to go across the country doing the same exact thing over and over again. Every single time they're gonna be destroying a family, they're gonna be taking a life, and they aren't caught. This is February sixteenth. They aren't caught until October twenty-fourth. Okay. So 
bear with me because I'm pulling from multiple sources and I didn't I didn't want to miss any victims. So if one source said that there was one victim and another one didn't include it, I decided to include it anyway. Um, please don't bite my head off. But if you do want to bite my head off, um, you can reach us again at the Detective Pod on Twitter. So after killing Kenya, Muhammad and Malvo would travel across the United States on basically an indiscriminate killing spree. Uh, They murdered and robbed people whenever was necessary. I don't know if it's ever necessary to murder someone. Right. But um, that's how it was described in an article I was reading. Um, So on March 19th, so this is about a month after... Kenya's murder in Tucson, Arizona, a 60-year-old man was killed by a rifle as he as he chipped balls on a golf course. I feel like that's so sad. So so many times you're going to read or you'll hear now about people who were literally just living their lives. They weren't hurting anyone. And again, no rhyme or reason for this. Just I mean, maybe the first victim, but I mean, I'm interested to kind of hear whether these other victims were targeted for a specific reason. And they weren't. (laughs) I'll go ahead and give you guys a little clue right now. Spoiler alert. They were not. And and that's, I think, what was the hardest thing to grasp. Like I said, just why were they doing it? Like, who were these people and why were they being chosen? And to think that there was no reason other than that they just wanted to murder people is is unreal. So we're going to go into this a little bit later. They had a couple different reasons why people thought that they were doing this, but I'm going to be honest, I don't really buy any of them. I think that these were just people who were mentally unwell and who had nothing left to lose. Um, So on September 5th in Clinton, Maryland, so now they've gone from Tucson to Clinton, um, Muhammad's oh so this is actually Clinton Maryland is Muhammad's ex-wife's hometown so this will play later um, a restaurant owner named Paul LaRufa was shot six times with a 22 caliber handgun and robbed of more than $3,000 in cash and a laptop computer um, police believe that this killing allowed them to buy a car and the supplies that they would need to commit subsequent murders some people talk about how this doesn't really fit their MO because most of their other killings were done with uh, a rifle, but the laptop from this murder would later be found in their car, which is how they knew that the two were linked. Um, So here's the thing, though, that I wanted to point out. Paula Rufa is killed on September 5th. The last place that we can place them is in Tucson, Arizona on March 19th. Somewhere between March and September, I believe they have to have more victims. Malvo has said in prison that there are undiscovered victims, people who they killed who were never identified. And so I'm I'm pretty sure, and I don't know if people disagree with me, that they were still murdering people between March and September. Wow. And oh, so many people who don't know what happened to their family. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the hardest part of a lot of these is like, okay, why was it done? No reason. Okay, I have a family member who died in that time span and we have no idea why. They were shot. They It kind of fit the MO. Like, will I ever have any answers? And the answer for a lot of these people is a big no. Like, it's so hard to come to terms with. Um, 
Okay, so at this point, we're going to take a little break, um, and we will be back shortly. Okay, we're back, and we have AC, and... A hot, tiny room and glasses of whiskey don't mix, so. (laughs) Yeah, we were getting ready to start fighting each other if it got any hotter in here, so (laughs) we're better now. Okay. Um, So at this point, things get a little bit confusing because there are a lot of murders, (laughs) a lot of murders happening um, in a very short time frame. Um, so I'll try to hit everything that's out there and get all the information that we know into this. But again, if you guys have any corrections, feel free to shoot them my way. I'm not very sensitive about that kind of stuff. Um, so on September 20th, there was a shooting and a robbery in Atlanta. So we're talking about going from Maryland to Georgia. And on the stand at Muhammad's trial, a witness testified that he saw Malvo fleeing the scene um, of that incident. On September 21st, 2002, at just a little bit after midnight, a 41-year-old named Million Waldemarian was fatally shot in the head uh, with a 22 caliber pistol, again, in Atlanta, Georgia. Waldemarian was, he was just helping the owner of a package store close up for the night. Literally just like helping his friend out. Yeah. So don't be good, people. <laughs> um, on September 23rd, a bullet from the same uh, .223 caliber rifle that had been used previously um, would be used to kill 45-year-old Hong M. Ballinger at a Baton Rouge parking lot as she was getting into her car after work. They were just going on a little road trip, weren't they? Yeah, clearly. And like, oh God, I guess this is what's so horrible is also they were so precise about these shootings. These were sometimes done from like point blank, but they were sometimes done from far away. It's it's really, really hard to then kind of get a consistent picture of these murders, which is why I think no one kind of put them all together until much, much later. Right. Um, so during this time, uh, when they were in Baton Rouge, they were staying with Muhammad's sister, Carol Williams. Um, and this is where Muhammad, up until now, hadn't really told Malvo why they were doing any of this, quote unquote, why. Which is crazy, right? I yes. mean, if you if you're thinking in your right state of mind that someone's like, OK, today we're going to get in this car and you're going to kill this person and you don't think this seems strange let's let's talk about why and the answer to why is probably because you are at this point so subordinate and so beaten down by this person that even asking why is something that you're worried is going to get you further into trouble like i i just feel so horrible for this kid for this kid but even more horrible for all these victims like anyway so get ready because this is legitimately crazy. I'm ready. I think. Muhammad tells Malvo that they were going to extort $10 million from the U.S. government by randomly killing people so that they could, quote-unquote, change the world. 
They would buy a big compound in Canada or Africa. Okay. Either one will do, We're I not guess. Discriminating. No. And start a utopian community of 70 black boys and 70 black girls. All of them would be educated in the proper ways of Islam and honor. By the way, the proper ways of Islam and honor, according to John Muhammad, were to walk around murdering people. And then upon maturity, they would go back into the world and change it for the better. So let's murder a bunch of people who are just living their lives in order to make the world a better place. Seems legit. Oh, definitely. I've never heard anything more sane. Um, So (laughs) that's what he told Malvo. But get ready for a twist because evidently sociopath murderers are also liars. According to other people who knew Muhammad during the time, his intentions were never to extort any money from the government. The entire killing spree was part of an insane scheme to get custody of Muhammad's kids. So remember those kids that he abducted and illegally moved out of the country? Those are the kids that he wants to get back by murdering a bunch of people. Yeah, I can see how that would work. I've just gone on a killing spree. You know, now I feel like you're better prepared to take care of your children. Here they are. Yeah, bear with me because this is a lot crazy. Um, So they would murder all of these people randomly without being caught. And then at the end, at the tail end of this killing spree, they would murder Muhammad's ex-wife, Mildred. And because they are so smart, the police would never catch on to them. And John Muhammad would be the person who would naturally get custody rights of the children. JK, not really, because he had been arrested for domestic abuse. There was a restraining order against him on the part of the children. And also, um, he kidnapped them. Well, at least that part of the justice system is is working well. (laughs) Do you want to get ready to be super sad? Probably. So it seems that even Lee Malvo could tell that this story about the $10 million and the utopia was complete garbage. Because in a letter that he wrote to Muhammad's niece around the same time, he wrote, I have a father, John Muhammad, who I know is going to have to kill me for a righteous society to prevail. Which seems to me to think that he thinks that as soon as Muhammad gets his kids back, he's going to be out of the picture. And, okay, so (laughs) that is a weird thing because, of course, I think, and I know I keep talking about sane and not sane, but any person, you know, you'd think that you would just walk away from somebody like this. Like, if if you thought that that was going to be the outcome, that you were surely going to be killed... You know, why wouldn't you run away or leave? Yeah, I... That might be too logical, though, eh? Well, we were talking about this last week um, when Mike was co-hosting the show. It's so hard to put yourself in the shoes of a person who is being abused or a person who is not in the right frame of mind. So if you think about it, this kid... I mean, this young man... Everything that he did was under the control of John Muhammad. So who knows what was actually going on? Like, there's talk of sexual abuse now. We know that he was physically 
exposing him to torture, tying him to trees, leaving him there, leaving him with no food. This is just the stuff that we're hearing. So I'm thinking that the stuff that we're not hearing is a hundred times worse. I, I think you're probably right. And in many ways, I'm kind of glad that I don't know. Yeah, I'm definitely glad that those images aren't in my head. But this is also from the person who, like, sits around on weekends, like, clickety-clack researching murders. I mean, you, so. are, you are running this podcast, so <laughs> maybe you do want to know. It's okay. You can, you can tell the truth. I'm, I'm not well, guys. I'm not well. <laughs> um, so fast forward to October 2nd, and this is where... This pair really kick it into high gear. Um, so from what I can tell, this is coming up on their deadliest day together. Um, by then, they had bought a car with the $3,000 that they had stolen from an earlier victim um, and built what is called like a makeshift sniper's nest. So like if you watch Homeland... <laughs> or did watch Homeland, Um, these kind of sniper's nests that are used to scope out areas and keep an eye on targets, they built in the back of a car so that it could be constantly moving, which is actually really, really terrifying when you (laughs) think about what people are capable of. Um, This is another reason that they were able to go undetected for so long, because by the time anyone realized that shots had been fired or that someone was on the floor bleeding, these two guys were gone. Or that someone's hiding in a car trunk in a parking lot. I mean, nobody's thinking that. You think that they're going to be out in the open so obviously exposed. and. And that's what I thought, too, when I, before I started doing any of my research, I just assumed that they were, like, up on a rooftop somewhere, and why couldn't the police just, like, fly a helicopter and find them? And it's because by the time anyone realized that something was wrong, the car was literally gone. And that's something that I think people don't realize when they're outside of the situation. And it's even something that I I think a lot of the witnesses and victims didn't realize either. So, oh God, this is so sad. At 6.30 p.m. on October 2nd, James Martin, a 55-year-old program analyst at NOAA, was shot and killed in the parking lot of a grocery store. He had just left work, stopped to pick up groceries, and was on his way home to his family. And, like, I don't know. I put myself in the situation of these people and, like, oh, I'm James. I'm going to stop at the grocery store and do my wife a favor. And, like, just living your life. Yeah. It's just so upsetting. Um... So the next morning, October 3rd, uh, at 7.41 a.m., James Sonny Buchanan was mowing the grass outside of an auto dealership when he was shot dead. Um, At first, this is kind of crazy, the paramedics thought that there had been some kind of accident with his lawnmower because he was bleeding so profusely, and there was literally a running lawnmower that just kept going. Oh, no. Um, But once they had kind of gotten his body cleaned up, they realized that it was definitely a, a... bullet hole um so over the next two hours i want to just put this in a little bit of perspective over the next two hours they would kill three more people in the span of less than three hours they they would kill four people on this day um each victim was chosen completely randomly they all varied in age um there was no one gender no one one ethnicity they were just basically indiscriminately looking for targets um 
They would take a little break, but uh, later on that night, 72-year-old Pascal Charlotte was walking on Georgia Avenue just minding his own business when he's shot and killed. He dies about an hour after being shot. Um, The very next day at 2.30 p.m., 43-year-old homemaker Carolyn Sewell was wounded in a parking lot. After that, and this is kind of where everyone starts paying attention and people are hearing about it on the news. So after that, they would take a break until October 7th. So they they do this kind of really horrible, like diabolical thing where they shoot, 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 and then take a little break. So people almost get lulled into a false sense of safety. Sure. Um, either way, people are freaking out. Uh, again, no one had ever really seen murders like this. They were taking place in broad daylight. We had no idea who these people were, what they looked like, or where the bullets were coming from, again, because they were in a moving car. So you would think to look up when shots are being fired, and that's not where these shots are coming from. Um, This is also post-Columbine, post-9-11, so... We had always kind of found out within a matter of hours or days who these spree killers were. Often when we had these high school shootings that were going on a lot in the United States at the time and still are going on today, these people weren't in an enclosed space. Whereas with the D.C. snipers, it was all taking place out in the open. There was no way to really track people or stop them from moving because at the same time people are freaking out they hear shots fired and they just scatter it's kind of like the worst case scenario for law enforcement um so basically the city is being held hostage for days on end um as Arianne had been talking about they were putting up tarps and sheets at gas stations to try to mask people um so that these snipers couldn't see when people got out of their cars. That didn't really stop them because a bunch of their other victims were at gas stations just coming out of their cars. Um, People were keeping their kids home from school. Journalists were literally all over the city. So brace yourself because on October 7th, when they become active again at 8.09 a.m., Iran Brown, a 13-year-old boy, was shot in the abdomen and critically wounded as he arrived at his middle school. Like, what the hell, man? It it was, again, I, I, I know I've said this like three times already on, on this podcast, but it was one of the most terrifying times that I can remember. It just, no one was safe. You didn't know what was going on. And I don't really remember, like, I don't remember the news so much. It was just that overwhelming sense of fear that you couldn't go about your daily life, that children weren't safe, you know, women weren't safe. It was just n- n- nothing was safe. Nothing nothing was out of bounds for these for these guys. Yeah, nothing was sacred. There was just a complete disregard for human life. Well, guess what, guys? Iran Brown survived his gunshot wounds and went on to testify at Muhammad's trial, which I Boom. love. It That's makes amazing. me so happy. Um, so... 
And again, there are a lot of crazy aspects to these crimes, so bear with me. (laughs) At the scene, police found some really, really bizarre clues. A shell casing, as well as a tarot card, which was later identified as the death card, inscribed with the phrase, call me God, on the front, and three separate lines on the back. For you, Mr. Police, code, call me God, do not release to the press. AKA... We're going to release it to... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just, like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. At this point, like... And was this the first time they just left tarot cards at the scene? They, yeah. Oh, this doesn't happen again. They're just like, F it. Let's, let's, let's throw this in there see what they do. <laughs> let's, let's really shake it up, guys. Um, so on October 9th and October 11th, they would kill two more people. Again, people who just stepped out of their cars at gas stations to fill up. Um, so now on October 14th, this is... Let's see. When did he... He shot at... Iran Brown on October 7th. This is about a week later on October 14th. At 9.15 p.m., they murdered 47-year-old Linda Franklin, who was actually an FBI analyst. Um, and this was actually at the Home Depot that you had visited. It's, it still totally gives me the creeps. I mean, my mom and I were in that parking lot. We were walking out to our car, you know? And who knows how long they were there. Oh, my God. You're right. I didn't even think about that. Right. I mean, Ugh. what, you know, there for the grace of God go I, right? I mean, it's kind yeah. of like one of those things where it's like, why why that person? It just is a very surreal feeling. So I know that this is already horrible and infuriating, but it's about to get just a little bit worse. Um, five days later, on October 19th at 8 p.m., 37-year-old Jeffrey Hopper was shot in a parking lot about 90 miles south of Washington, D.C., Close by, as they were combing the area, authorities discovered a four-page letter from the shooter in the woods that demanded this $10 million ransom and made a threat to children, basically telling the press, no one's safe, you're not safe, your children aren't safe. Talk about mass panic. Yeah. I mean, you want to mess with people... That they they're doing it right. I mean, they did it right. It yeah. was crazy. <laughs> I mean, I, and again, like I have friends who grew up in D.C. who were basically just like, "Oh yeah, my parents didn't let me go to school." Like, I, and and schools actually bumped up security in a major way. Yeah. Some some did just have increased police presence. Some didn't let kids um, outside during school hours, but some just straight up closed. Some just said. As long as these people are out on the loose, we're not having children leaving their homes, which is so heartbreaking. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, how do you protect a community or many communities from something that you you can't see? You didn't know where these guys were. Yeah, I I have no idea. But kudos to law enforcement. So actually, this is a great time to talk about Charles Moose. Oh, my God. He's like my favorite. Great name. This whole thing. I know. So Chief Charles Moose um, was actually heading the investigation. He was based out of Maryland. And if you're going, I just just heads up. If one day when you grow up, you want to be a police chief, Charles Moose is an amazing name for that job. It really is. (laughs) Chief Charles Moose. Chief Charlie Moose. Um, So actually, 
Go ahead and Google him because oh, I kind of just did. <laughs> <laughs> so on his Wikipedia Look page. Look at this sweet little bunny. Oh, my God. He's like in like his full green, green uniform. He looks like the most perfect like guardian angel. Like if I were ever in trouble, this is the guy that I would want to see. Oh, my God. Like he just looks like so perfect in every way. I love it. Yeah. So what well, what I'll do after this is I'll tweet a picture of Charles Moose. And who knows? Maybe he's on Twitter. Maybe he'll tweet me back. Um, so on October 22nd, this is a couple days after they get this weird psycho message um, about killing children. Bus driver Conrad Johnson was shot at 5.56 a.m. literally as he was standing on the steps of his bus. At this point, Chief Moose, our boy, Charlie, um, released the part of the content of the letter where the snipers declare, your children are not safe anywhere at any time. Johnson, the bus driver, would later die of his injuries. Um, And... I don't even know how to like gear people up for this because to me this is this is the craziest part of this entire story. These guys have been on the loose for months, killing people indiscriminately. They've got the FBI and police forces from three different states tracking them down, and these two absolutely evil pieces of human garbage were caught. Because they were sleeping in their car. Yeah, that's insane. But I do want to point out that as there were a lot of false um, reports oh, about yeah. the car or what it was. So earlier I mentioned the white van. There, They had said that they were driving around in a white van. So all those poor guys and gals that drive around in those work vans. I mean, anytime you saw one, you wanted to jump into a bush because and hide from them because you didn't know what they were going to do. So I just had to add that side note because there were a lot of false leads about yeah. cars and whatnot um, along the way before they identified the um, the car that they had, the Caprice. Yeah, because plot twist, guys, they were actually driving around in a blue 1990 Chevrolet Caprice, which is, like, everyone's granddad's car. <laughs> like, I looked at pictures of it on on Google, and it it's just, like, literally, like, what my 90-year-old grandfather drove because he thought it looked cool. Well, it's a boat of a car. Yeah. <laughs> it is a boat. Um, so these two idiots are caught at three o'clock in the morning on October 24th sleeping in their cars and the rest is kind of history as soon as police kind of like tap on the window they notice like oh there is something not right in this car these two guys are sleeping in it one is a minor they ask them to get out of the car and as soon as they even look inside the car number one there are hidden compartments everywhere there are weapons everywhere it literally like unfolds into a goddamn sniper's nest well how odd that they would leave themselves so vulnerable after I mean, really, I don't want to give them credit, but they were pretty stealth. Yeah. 
I mean, to leave themselves open like that is kind of astounding. Well, so what I what I have to believe is that they thought at this point, like, oh, we're untouchable. Yeah, we're never gonna get caught. Yeah, maybe. like how ha- we have been out here doing this for so long. These police officers are idiots. Like they'll never catch on to us because clearly we're beautiful geniuses. Ugh, sorry, this makes me so upset. Anyway, the rest is kind of history. On November 11, 2009, Muhammad is executed. Um, he has no last words, which always drives me crazy when murderers don't have last words. Yeah, it's like, say something. Explain yourself. Yes, explain yourself, you piece of garbage. Um, Malvo was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Actually, Malvo, when he took the stand, basically admitted to the 17 killings that they're that they have attributed to them. He... I, it's so upsetting because he, he doesn't fight at any point. And something that they talk about a lot is, especially when he was a child, he was ju- he was such a people pleaser. Like, he always wanted to make his mom and dad proud. He always wanted to do anything that his teachers told him to do. Like, I just think that at some point, like, he was just broken. Actually, in the same interview with Matt Lauer that I quoted earlier, he is quoted as saying about being in prison... In here, there's no therapy. Rehabilitation is just a word. In solitary confinement, in a cell by yourself, I am the priest, the doctor, and the therapist. Wow. Yeah. It, That's it, an intense it's, statement. It's an intense statement, and I feel like it gives you, like, a little clue into, like, how intelligent this kid is and how, like... How, given a couple tweaks, maybe his life wouldn't have ended up this way. Sure. Um, so what I like to do, because this is kind of the end of our episode, um, I hope you all enjoyed it. I really tried to get as much good information as possible into kind of the one hour that we have to work with. Um but I like to play some upbeat music because I feel like the end of this podcast is always such a bummer. And it just so happens that Ariane is a very talented singer, so maybe she'll sing you something. Oh. <laughs> her face is, like, bright red. I didn't tell her I was going to do this. Cool. Um, uh, any suggestions on, on what to... On I what? don't have any, but probably something that I don't have to pay royalties for. <laughs> Oh, is that all? God. Do you know any, like, good nursery rhymes? No. <laughs> what? Mary had a little... Yeah, let's hear it. <laughs> can't believe you're doing this to me. Okay. <clears throat> if I... This is my dream, um, to sing Mary Had a Little Lamb to people. Okay. Mary had a little lamb, little lamb, little lamb. Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow. Yeah! <laughs> that doesn't perk you up, I don't know. That was the best rendition of Mary Had a Little Lamb oh that I've ever heard. That was incredible. I'm blushing. You guys can't see me. And also, it's 90 degrees in this It's 90 degrees box. And we both been drinking whiskey, so it could be a lot of things. In anyway. so fact, though. It's our fault. Um, again, if you enjoyed this, and even if you didn't enjoy it, honestly, uh, I don't really care. Please rate and review <laughs> on iTunes. Um, you can find us uh, just by searching Detective Society. Uh, I'm Natalie Levy. And I am Ariane Lorena. And this is Detective Society. Detective Society.